Maryland Crimes Daily Debrief, everybody. Attorneys on both sides in the Harvey Weinstein sex crimes trial have agreed to get rid of some of the many people summoned to hear the case as those attorneys file complaints about publicity and the judge threatens to punish one of the summoned jurors. Law and Crimes' Jesse Weber joins us live from outside the courthouse in Lower Manhattan. He's been in the courtroom all day watching jury selection unfold. Jesse, good evening. Good evening, Aaron. Good evening, Aaron. Today was day one of the official voir dire jury selection process. After 2,000 summons were issued for this case and over 600 jurors questioned, we're down this morning to 146. Now, that includes 63 jurors that were excused by agreement on both the defense and the prosecution side. Now, one of those 63 is a man who actually tweeted to his 7,000 followers about the trial and jury selection, and then he even liked a comment from someone saying to find Weinstein guilty. As you can imagine, Judge Burke was not too happy about this. This is in direct violation of the court's order to not speak about the case. This juror was called in, and he was told to report back at 9.30 a.m. on March 10th to bring a lawyer and show cause for why he shouldn't be held in contempt. Now, contempt is a fine, and it's up to 30 days in jail. Before the juror left, the judge coldly said to him, good luck. Today, the jurors were questioned in panels of around 20 by both sides and the judge, and it appears as of now that seven jurors have been selected. We can't forget that the magic number here is 18. 12 jurors, six alternates. The question, of course, is can we get to that number by opening statements on January 22nd? That's the question, Aaron. And Jesse, of course, we have to have enough people on the panel for the peremptory strikes here. Uh, what type of questions are prosecutors and defense attorneys actually asking the people who have been picked thus far? Aaron, this was fascinating. So we see these questions from back and forth. Some of the questions from the prosecution were, could you find the defendant guilty based solely on alleged victims testifying? No other evidence. Uh, also questioned about fighting back. One of the ADAs made a very interesting analogy and said, well, if someone's robbed, but they put their hands up and give the money anyway, that's still robbery. Now, that question seemed to be asked because it seemed to be equating to rape. If you don't fight back, it's still rape. Uh, Another question was that anything that you see about the defendant, if you look at him in open court, is this not somebody who could have done this? Uh, and then the defense asked some interesting questions as well. Have you ever been accused of something that you didn't do? Could someone have sex with someone that they don't really find attractive, but they do it for reasons other than love? Do you think cross-examination is victim shaming? Now, after these questions, we obviously saw, uh, and the jury was excused, preemptory challenges, which are challenges without cause. And believe it or not, the state actually accused the defense of improperly using their challenges, saying that they have they struck, they took out every white female. And they said, look what they're doing here, judge. And the judge didn't buy that and said the defense did provide alternative explanations. But again, another day of drama between both sides. It's certainly a contentious process. Jesse Weber reporting live from the courthouse tonight. Weinstein's defense team filed an appeal to a higher court late yesterday. The so-called interlocutory appeal to the New York Appellate Division describes the proceedings and the events outside the courthouse as poisonous to Weinstein's right to a fair trial. The filing bemoans a tainted jury, a fresh wave of negative press, and says the current venue has devolved into a carnival-like atmosphere that no prospective juror can avoid. The defense says the hordes of cameras, which have thinned out as the proceeding has gone on, 
and protests. Harvey will be held accountable for his actions. Which the defense claims can be heard inside the courtroom from across the street have resulted in clear biases that jurors have withheld from the court but disclosed on social media. This court has an obligation to step in at this point and halt the media frenzy that has plagued the courthouse and its surroundings, the defense writes, even as the defense has fed into some of it. She stands up in front of a court and calls my client a predator. Mr. Weinstein, again, has a right to a fair trial. The defense says 91% of prospective jurors reported some exposure to coverage of the case they've been summoned to potentially hear. The defense also claims there has been nothing objective about the coverage as a whole and even names the law and crime network among the many news organizations it cites. Summing up the coverage, the defense says it's a chorus in condemnation of Harvey Weinstein. The defense requests a change of venue to either Albany or Suffolk counties as a solution. Let's jump in with analysis now. One judge and three attorneys with us tonight. Let's begin with attorney Eklund Mercy in Atlanta and Judge Brandon Birmingham in Dallas. So Judge Birmingham, you have to preside over cases like this down there in Texas. What's going through your mind as you watch this happen up here? Can the defendant get a fair jury who will make a decision not based on what they read uh, online or what they heard here at the Law and Crime Network, for example? But based on what the evidence is admitted at the trial and the law that I, as the judge, give to them and nothing else, can they uphold their oath? That's what you're that's what you're trying to get. When you're faced with questions like this, though, judge, where the defense is basically asking a judge to step down and then trying to get an appellate court involved. If you're hit with something like that, what do you do? Well, you you understand what your role is as the judge is to be a neutral arbiter. You respect uh, each side for zealously representing their client as they should do. Uh, and you let the chips fall where they may. Your your adherence is to the law and the Code of Criminal Procedure and the Constitution. That's it. Eklund Mercy, attorney in Atlanta, Georgia. Eklund, should this case be moved? What do you think? I think so. I actually do. Um, you know, I I do not like cases to be tried in the court of public opinion. And uh, Mr. Weinstein deserves a fair trial. And not only that, the alleged victims deserve a fair trial. So with that being said, when you have a group of people, when you have press conferences in front of the courthouse telling, you know, saying how your 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 client is a terrible person, that does not help you. And then it feels like, you know, the the jurors have like have to feel some type of way. What if they find him not guilty, even on one of the charges? Can that mob turn, you know, turn against them? So there's a lot of things to consider. And because of how high profile this case is, I would actually consider moving, moving it. Let's turn now to our New York attorneys in studio with me, Brian Buckmeyer, Catherine Smith. You both practice right here in this jurisdiction. Brian, your analysis of what's happening. Yeah, so it's interesting how the Batson challenge is being used here. The Batson challenge is when one side is saying that another is deselecting people based on whether it be race, ethnicity, or gender. Batson dates back to 1986 and Batson v. Kentucky and then added race and ethnicity afterwards. You can't do that. You can deselect people for whatever reason, but you cannot do it based on protected class. I think it was interesting that it was brought up, but of course the, uh, the judge overruled it. Yeah, I mean, so Catherine, apparently there was enough of an explanation that there was not just simply a gender uh, bias, if we can call it that, on behalf of the people making the strikes. Right. I mean, 
I think as a matter of course, you usually bring up a Batson challenge, even if it might not really be. It's part of one of the things you need to do if there is a specific pattern that you see. But if the judge found that that wasn't the case and there must have been some other justifications, for each individual juror, they could say, you know what, that person had too close of ties with you know, a defendant or whatever it was. It's a closely watched case. We will continue to watch it and play our role here. And now let's look at a case we'll be covering shortly here on the Law and Crime Network involving a defendant raising questions about ritualistic killings and a jailhouse informant. There's no right or wrong answer. Donald Hartung faces the death penalty in Florida if convicted on charges he murdered his mother and his two brothers in this house in Pensacola. Authorities claim Hartung committed so-called ritualistic killings tied to witchcraft on the date of a rare blue moon. But prosecutors may argue a financial motive instead. Still, the jury questionnaire asks these questions. Are you familiar with Wicca? If yes, what is your understanding of Wicca? Then, have you ever used an Ouija board? If yes, please explain the circumstances. Also, have you or anyone close to you ever practiced Native American rituals? If yes, please explain the circumstances. And what we're asking you as jurors to do is look into your souls, look into your conscience, and tell us honestly, or answer honestly, the questions that we ask you. The questions obviously don't state what the evidence will be at trial, but they do allow attorneys to understand who is sitting on the jury and whether the jury can fairly decide the case. Documents reveal that Hartung is said to have confessed to this man, Marlon Purifoy, a fellow inmate. Purifoy told authorities that Hartung told him he'd been planning the murders for four years. Purifoy is serving an attempted murder sentence after pleading guilty to attacking his girlfriend with a hammer. Jury consultant Ellen Turkheimer says both sides in this case need to focus on two big questions, preconceived notions about religious beliefs and how the jurors view mental health. No matter how, if it's centrally involved or peripherally involved, if there's any kind of issue such as the Wicca religion in the case, then the panelists are going to be talking about it. Some might have preconceived beliefs, some might have some ideas coming in that whether or not they're actually true, this is something that both sides want to know about. So that's why they want to ask about it. They want to see what the predispositions are and the pre-existing attitudes are of potential jurors before they start to thoroughly question them. Whatever the defense is going to be, if it, they're, they're looking to see, well, not only if it's raised as a defense that there's some mitigating factors or that he was compromised, that's one thing, but also they just want to know what the jurors think about that because some of them might come to their own conclusion, some of them might become a quote-unquote expert in the deliberation if they end up making on the jury. So they want to know what prospective jurors think about some of these other issues that pertain to mental health and mental suffering. And certainly if they have an experience with it, then that's going to uh, lead to a, a belief in, in mental health and what that entails. Let's turn back to our in-house panel in studio with me tonight. Brian, Catherine, I can't help but think that the jury questionnaire in this case is more complicated and more thorough than the one in the Harvey Weinstein case. It is, but also there's that double-edged sword. With jury questionnaires, not only are you trying to sort through your prospective jurors, but you're also educating them. And here with all the wicked questions, you're wondering if they're really trying to taint the jurors' impressions one way or another of this defendant. Who knows if that's even going to come out during the trial? Exactly, Brian. We're hearing from the state that this might be a case involving a simple financial motive and that the rest of this CD information might not even come in. Exactly, but in finding the right juror, you want to see what their biases are coming in. And everyone has them. It's not a negative or a positive. And what preconceived notions they might have. Because while this might be just about money, the Wicca and the religious beliefs are definitely on the peripheral.
Exactly. Let's turn now to our panel watching from afar with us tonight. Eklund Mercy in Atlanta. Uh, if you were the prosecutor here, would you be going for the financial motive or would you really want to bring in Wicca? Would you want to bring in the blue moon? Would you want to bring all this other information in? Yeah, well, if I was a prosecutor, that's funny. But um, uh, from their side, I would say I would just focus on the financials. Unless you have extraordinary circumstances, bringing in the fact of Wicca, you're actually... You're, you're taming the jury, and you're actually de de disqualifying qualified jurors. I mean, I, I am absolutely an attorney. However, if I sit there and you're talking about moons and things and people are dying, um, as a juror, a prospective juror, I'm scared. I don't want things to happen to me when I leave. That is a regular, that is a rational belief for certain jurors. So unless you have a lot of information, I wouldn't bring up I wouldn't bring up the moon and all these other rituals things. Judge Brandon Birmingham, how do you actually referee a case like this? Uh, well, you, with all of the different competing interests in, in, in mind, you want to make sure every side has an opportunity to be heard, that jurors are treated respectfully, uh, and that the questions are, are designed and taken to uh, lead to a valid challenge for cause or a valid peremptory strike. So that's the, the judge's job. I, I do I do want to say it's very concerning, I think, in this day and age to use a jailhouse informant. It will be really interesting to see how strong this person is and how they plan on using his testimony at trial. We've learned a great deal of lessons in the past about guys and witnesses like that. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's move on now. A man convicted of plotting to murder his wife with a hammer is asking for a new trial. Lawyers for defendant Mark Seavers say the only evidence tying their client to the crime comes from co-defendant Curtis Wright, whom they call a known liar. They also say a letter from the victim's co-worker's wife was not found before the guilt phase, and this new evidence could have been used for impeachment purposes. Mark Seavers was convicted of first-degree murder in the death of his wife, Dr. Teresa Seavers, and sentenced to death earlier this year. Co-defendant Jimmy Ray Rogers was sentenced to life in prison. Curtis Wright testified as part of a plea deal and is expected to be sentenced next month. And still ahead tonight here on The Debrief, a look towards sentencing in a California quadruple murder. A jury recommended death for defendant Chase Merritt, but it's not official until a judge makes it so. A look at a long, contentious case and a look ahead to tomorrow's hearing when we come back. Before we go much further tonight, let's check in with Chief Investigative Correspondent Brian Ross with what he's working on this evening. Brian? Thanks, Aaron. Coming up tonight, the story of a lawsuit against Harvard, an explosive lawsuit brought by a young man who was born in Nigeria and overcame hardships in his life on the rough streets of Houston to become one of Harvard's star students. But on the morning of his graduation, he was told he would not be getting his degree because of allegations of sexual misconduct brought by two of his former girlfriends. He's now suing Harvard, saying the process against him was unfair. He couldn't question the witness, he couldn't get a lawyer, and he says there were no black males on the panel, which made his decision against him very unfair. Brian will be watching for that report coming up in a few minutes. Sentencing tomorrow for a man convicted of killing a family of four and burying them in the California desert. A jury recommended a death sentence last year against Chase Merritt in the murders of Summer McStay and her two young children in 2010. The jury recommended Merritt spend his life in prison for the murder of his business partner, Joseph McStay. Defense attorney James McGee is off the case, leaving defense attorney Raj Maline to handle the hearing tomorrow. Here was the verdict. We, the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Charles Ray Merritt, 
guilty of the offense of murder in the first degree in violation of Penal Code Section 187A of Joseph McStay, dated June 7, 2019, four-person. Title of court and cause, verdict. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Charles Ray Merritt, guilty of the offense of murder in the first degree in violation of Penal Code Section 187A of Summer Mixed Day, dated June 7, 2019. In asking for a death sentence, prosecutors played an emotional family video taken by victim Joseph McStay of his own wife and children. The circumstances of the offense include the murder of an individual, Joe McStay. And there are the boys around the swings. Who the defendant befriended. Summer McStay, who clearly took the brunt of the injuries when you heard testimony about her remains and how she was found with her jaw broken. The circumstances that include a mother's inability to protect her two children that were bludgeoned to death. The circumstances include the age and the innocence of Joe Jr. and Gianni McStay. Two small children who were bludgeoned to death merely because they could identify the individual, the defendant. <laughs> what is that? What's that, Jay? Hi, Joseph McStay's mother, Susan Blake, also testified during the sentencing hearing with this emotional remembrance of her son and his murdered family. They were little boys in a fantasy world, and they did everything with their parents and us in parks and Legoland, and they didn't know fear. They didn't know to be scared. They didn't know hurt. They just were in this fantasy world, and they'll never get to see them grow up or talk to them. I go to the gravesite to talk to them. I got to bury them all together, so. How has your life changed since your son has been murdered? One minute you have a whole family, and the next minute half of your family is just missing, and the hurt will never go away. On the financial end, it was devastating. I had lost my house, I lost everything. But I didn't care. I was going to find them. And yet, you miss their sounds and their laughter. And now I go to a gravesite and talk to them. They'll never, ever be the same. Never. Let's go now to Judge Brandon Birmingham, watching with us from Dallas, Texas. Now, Judge, the jury recommended a death sentence here. The judge ultimately hands down the final sentence. That's what happens tomorrow. Does a judge ever overturn a death recommendation from a jury? And if so, when? Uh, a judge has that power, has that authority. And if it's within the uh, judge's conscience to do so, supported by the law and the evidence, then the judge should do it. 
Eklund Mercy, you're a defense attorney in Atlanta, Georgia. We watched this case for quite some time here at Law and Crime. We saw a lot of contention between the defense and the prosecution. I'm anticipating some motions from the defense tomorrow to try to upend this verdict. Yeah, and I mean, you are, but is it going to, are they going to be granted? Probably not. The only way I can see this motion being granted is if the victim's family states that they don't want the death penalty. That is the only way I can see that happening. Other than that, it's the death penalty stand. Yeah, I think it would be very rare to have that. Appreciate both of the uh, insights from afar tonight here on The Debrief. Let's turn to our in-studio panel right now. Brian Buckmeyer, the thing that bothers me about this case is the unknown DNA in the graves. The defense did a test which found unknown DNA on the ropes, which tied up the victims, and ultimately prosecutors did nothing to try to run it through the DNA database to see whose DNA it was. We know it's not the defendants, but the defense took care of that. We don't know whose it might be. I would agree with you wholeheartedly, but to Judge Birmingham's credit, the jury not only came back with a guilty verdict, but also a recommendation of death. So they must have discredited that, even though you and I agree that that should have been a major part of this trial. Uh, they disagreed, and that's why they went with guilty and asked for the death penalty. And Catherine, one of the things the jury credited, and we know this because of the jury questions, was this television interview that Merritt, the defendant himself did, where he was asked a question and he basically said, I was the last one to see the people who died here, all four victims. He didn't say it quite that way, but apparently the jury gave that a lot of weight. Right, and, and that's the thing, that's the jury's auspice. They're allowed to decide how much weight, if any, to give to evidence. And it's clear that they reconciled all these issues. To us, there's some problems with the evidence, the DNA, the lack of forensic evidence within the home. There's lots of issues, but the jury reconciled that and went with death. Now, Brian, one thing I look at is professionalism at trial here, and I was rather caustic in my criticism of the way the prosecutors were rolling their eyes at the defense during closing arguments. If a prosecutor ever did that to you when you were giving a closing argument, what would you do? <laughs> um, me personally, as a defense attorney, I always think that I'm a representation of my client. So Brian Buckmeyer, the person, would have some choice words for them, but Brian Buckmeyer, the lawyer, understands that my client comes first. And so instead of being over the top or angry about it, you maintain your professionalism because that's a reflection of your client and you hold your tongue and you maybe come back at them with solid evidence and solid facts. That's one way to handle it. Brian Buckmeyer, the professional here, along with Catherine Smith in studio. Appreciate both of your insights here on The Debrief. And of course, thanks to those of you watching along with us tonight. We've had a lot to talk about tonight, and we will tomorrow when the McStay family murder case goes to a sentencing hearing. We'll see you back there at 5.